getting up here. Oh, thanks, Renee. (laughs) So let's uh, read the passage. It's Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, this lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in in your word we find hope, we find life, we find direction. We also find uh, so many things that confront our hearts. Lord, I thank you for what we have in the Gospels where we get to see you, Jesus, as you lived on this earth. We get to see your character, your commitment to God's um, purpose in sending you, your, your commitment to, to love people, to, to come to the earth to die for sin. We, we, love, we love seeing your commitment to the word. You you're quote constantly out of the scriptures. And you, you fulfill them, you teach them clearly. And Lord, here in this passage, we see you, even in the midst of being tested with these men with evil intent, trying to undermine your authority, trying to make you look bad publicly. Lord, we see you still say amazing things, your, your, your might, your mastery. Lord, it, it's so evident and God, in the midst of all this, help us to, to see what you're doing with the Word and, and to see how you tie uh, what love for God really means and love for others. And, and may we be challenged by that this morning, Lord. Let's, let us not miss what's going on here. So God, use your Word to change us, to transform us. And God, may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I was smelling something burning, so I was getting a little uh, antsy over here. Everything's okay. <laughs> Starting to wait. I better make this shorter. So, hey, here we are. We're in the middle of a section. Yeah. We're in the middle of a section of Scripture. It's, it's what's called the Passion Week, right? The final week of Jesus' life. It, it's kicked off by his, it, it's kind of a sort of kicked off. I talked about this when he hits Jericho. What happens in Jericho that kind of set the stage for all that was going to happen up in Jerusalem? Do you remember that? Who did he meet in the, do you remember who the, the two men whom he met there? Okay, now that's, that's something we didn't really hear. That was from a different one. The blind men. What was significant about the blind men in Jericho? There's just one real kind of significant thing. They knew who he was, even though they were blind, physically blind. But Jesus was going up to Jerusalem where the spiritual heavyweights, and I use that in quotes, who knew Scripture, they were physically able to see, but spiritually, what are they? They're blind. See, that you guys understand, the way that the Gospels are arranged, they're significant. Jesus did so many things that John says all the books of the world couldn't record them all, and yet... We see the writers of these Gospels picking specific things to the exclusion of others, because you can't include everything, but to make a point. 
And it was so evident, this kind of kicks off the whole thing. Jesus is going to where, where the men who call themselves the spiritual elite, the Sadducees, who were in control of the Temple Mount, very political, only believed in the first five books of Torah, didn't believe in the resurrection. That's who Jesus confronted last week in our last passage. The Pharisees, who were mainly out amongst the people, but they were the big movers and shakers in the religious world because the people really liked them. They were the ones who wanted to teach, but they're legalists. External righteousness. He had confronted them, but he's going to confront them again today. And then there's a special group called the scribes. They're, among, they're part of the, the uh, Pharisees group, but what are scribes? Anyone know? Lawyers, basically. Legal experts applying Torah, God's word, to everyday life. They're the ones who, who were so good at getting to the nitty-gritty, nitty all right? And that's why I put today's titles, Jesus, you know, it's part three of, of being confronted by these guys, but this one's called Converting a Lawyer. Kind of cool, right? There's all sorts of lawyer jokes you could come up with, especially here in California. But we get to see what Jesus does here, and we get to see the power of his word and, and see it start to transform and convert people. But so this is the, the scene. We're in the middle of his Passion Week. He is on a mission, and he knows that the end of this week is going to result in his death. He knows that. He has specifically picked this time. And what is the timing? What time of year in the Jewish calendar is it? Passover. The number one feast where all faithful Jews are supposed to return to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount, to offer sacrifices. It's to remember what God had done for the Jews, getting them out of Egypt in 1444 B.C. under the leadership of? Moses, Moses, don't ever forget this. He is the number one guy in the Jewish mindset as the key leader. Did you know that? It's Moses first, then David. Because Moses was not just a leader, but he did something else that's in the Jewish mindset. Remember, we're supposed to think like Jews when we look at Scripture, all right? He gave them the law, Torah. He was the one who God gave and he recorded the first, what we call the first five books, or Torah. He was the one who gave the law. And the Jewish mindset, that's wow. So the, the law, God's word is so critical in the life of Israel. So when the Messiah was to come, he had to live by Torah and he had to know how to teach, explain Torah. And we see that throughout Jesus, whenever he taught, what was the universal response? Wow. Look at the authority of his teaching, not like the scribes and Pharisees, okay? So that's been going on throughout Jesus' life, but now he's at the temple. He's on their turf. Sadducees, the political guys, the, the religious elite, the wealthiest, the aristocrats in Israel. Then the Pharisees, because they're part of the Sanhedrin, of course they came to the temple. Then we have hundreds of thousands of people. I told you how many people were probably there at this time. Probably 2.6 million. That's a conservative estimate. And how many can fit on top of the Temple Mount, that big flat structure? I've said it out before, do you remember? About a quarter of a million people could be there. And at this point, it's Wednesday. Passover is in a day and a half at this point. It's crowded. So this scene of Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders is very public. He had just embarrassed them. Big time. How? 
cleansing the temple mount, turning over tables, kicking out. They, not only did it embarrass the leaders, the religious leaders, because he called them out for turning, it into, turning the temple mount into a den of robbers, he also went after their pocketbooks. This is where they make all their money. Remember, they, every Jew had to sacrifice a lamb, but where are you going to get the lamb to sacrifice at the temple? Well, you could bring one, but what was happening there all the time? And this is, this is recorded by Josephus and other historians of the time. What were the... what? Oh, that lamb you brought, there's some blemish. Here, buy this one from us. We'll take that one for you, give you a little discount. And what were they really doing? They were robbing the people. And they were making big-time money, and it was happening on top of the Temple Mount. There was not supposed to be any commerce done up there, but the Sadducees had prostituted the church. Well, not the church with God's people, the Temple Mount. That's why Jesus was so angry. And when He did that, that was public and it was embarrassing to them. That's why they said, what right do you have? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And that's why they started testing Him. And they were especially mad because He had just done three parables publicly before this. After the, ten, the cleansing of the temple, then He did these three parables on the Temple Mount, calling them out as six shepherds who were going to be left out of the kingdom of God. They're angry. They're plotting to do what to him? Definitely to kill him, but they wouldn't yet because of why? Fear they feared the people because what do the people see him as? A prophet at least. Okay, so that's the scene. Don't forget there's tension. There's electricity in the air. The people are watching this happen. So Jesus has been, had given two tests already, first by the Pharisees and the Herodians about the, hey, who, do we, who should we pay taxes to? Is it right to pay taxes? And Jesus showed him a coin, hey, whose image is on the coin? Remember we talked about it a few weeks ago? And it was a theological coin in one sense because it, it did, it had his image on it and it said Caesar Augustus, right? And he called him, he's supposed to worship him, the divine one. And then on the other side said he was basically called the high priest. It was a theological statement. That's why the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, hated that coin. And Jesus says, hey, yeah, pay unto Caesars what is Caesars, and unto God what is God's. So then we talked about a little bit, that's, hey, that's, hey we have to pay taxes. We're part of this world, right? But what a, what a masterful stroke. They were trying, the Pharisees and Herodians were trying to get Jesus to either say, I'm for Rome or I'm against Rome. And one way or the other, he was going to get in trouble either with the people or he was going to get arrested by the Roman soldiers. But Jesus masterfully saw right through it. Then last week we looked at the Sadducees. What was their main issue, their main challenge? The issue is the resurrection and, and this whoop, excuse me, <laughs> this woman who had had seven husbands, right? Because first she was married and then her husband died and then the Levirate marriage that's made for in, in Deuteronomy, her brother, or his brother, not her brother, his brother, the next in line, marries her, because if they have a child, what is that first child considered? The son of the deceased husband, so his name could be carried on. We talked about how that provided for property rights and inheritance in the land of Israel, as well as welfare, taking care of widows. That was their system. God set it up. But they're trying to show, hey, if, if in the resurrection, because their mind in the resurrection, if it happened, because they the, remember the Sadducees didn't believe in it, so they're hypocrites in even bringing it up. They're trying to show, hey, in the, in the resurrection, well, whose wife will she be? 
Isn't it, isn't it polygamy or is it even incest? That was what they're trying to get him. And Jesus shows, you don't know the Scriptures. God is the God of the living, not the dead. He, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, all throughout the Scriptures, you see when Jesus refers to them, He refers to them as having a present tense relationship with the living God now. They may not be on earth with us, but they are in relationship with the living God now. Masterful stroke. The Pharisees, hearing this, because that was a debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees probably were like, yes, but they're also, no, because he had just shown in front of all the people his power and his mastery of the word. So now we come to the third and final test. All right, and that's the scene. Jesus' opponent now is a lawyer called a scribe, a Torah expert, all right? Um, again, a special class within the Pharisees. They're experts in Torah and all the legal aspects. And one of the Pharisees heard, one of them being a lawyer, we also know from Mark, that he, he saw the Pharisees and the scribes disputing or gathered together because Jesus had just beat them again. And then he, being a special one, because remember, the, the group of Pharisees and Sadducees, the scribes, the high priests, they were the elite. So this person who's coming to Jesus is probably one of the top lawyers in all of Israel. This is a big question. The scene they had heard, the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. That word is, I heard this, that, that word means gagged them. They were absolutely dumbfounded by Jesus' answer in the previous passage. They were silenced, but the Pharisees won't give up. They can't let Jesus win. They had the same evil intent. So this guy coming up, we see he has a different response after Jesus replied to him. We see that, we see the tide changing here, but we can't miss that he's coming with evil intent because that was their goal all along is to trap Jesus and undermine him. But we see that opinion is turning. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Again, when he was called teacher before by the Sadducees or the disciples of the Pharisees, I'm sorry. Why did they call him teacher? Faking admiration. They're hypocrites, right? But it was a sarcastic. But again, teacher was the number one title you could give somebody in Israel. A title of highest honor. Bless you. <laughs> again, when he says, which is the greatest commandment of the law? This was a, a rabbinic debate. This is a current debate that they had had going on. There's a, a story about rabbis, you know, trying to figure out and, and to summarize the law to get to the heart of the law. And we see in the Talmud the collection of the uh, rabbinical writings, says, Rabbi Simlai said 613 commandments were given to Moses. If you look in the Torah, they did this. <laughs> they, have, they counted all the commandments in the first five books, the commandments of God. They counted them. 360, uh, or 613 commandments were given to Moses, 365 negative, equaling the number of days in the year, and 248 positive, equaling the number of a man's members. I, I, is that talking about bones? I don't know. But the point is, here they keep going down. David came and reduced them to 11 in Psalm 15. 
Then Isaiah reduced them to six in Isaiah 33, 15 through 16. Micah to three in Micah 6, 8. In Isaiah again to two, as it is said, keep judgment and do righteousness, Isaiah 66, 1. Then Amos reduced them to one, seek me and live, Amos 5, 4. Or one could say Habakkuk did it, the righteous shall live by his faith in Habakkuk 2, 4. They, they haggled and haggled about the law. So when this expert came, they're saying, hey, teacher, show us the money. Let's see how you pass the interpretational test. Do you know the law? Its essence boiled down. Because remember, they're challenging his authority. What right do you have? Then we have Jesus' answer. And it's called, by many people, called the Great Commandment. We've got the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Anyone know that? Go out and tell the world, make disciples of all nations, right? That's called the Great Commission, the great sending out by the king of his church. This is called the Great Commandment, okay? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So he's summarizing the law. And what is he quoting here? He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. He's quoting what's called the Shema of Israel. Shema is from the first word of this statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is good. Then Jesus, in, in, Luke, or in Mark, it's recorded that Jesus actually started with that verse. Matthew doesn't include it here. But here's, he goes on to quote from Deuteronomy 6, 5. See, here's the deal. Jesus starts with the place you have to start, our God-word relationship, vertically, okay? He'll get to the horizontal, and that's an important thing. We're going we're gonna to walk through that a little bit, all right? But he's saying you have to start with our first and most important relationship. If you don't have a right orientation towards God, it doesn't matter what you do to people this way, it's not real love. Because if you don't have a right relationship with the God of the universe, where he gives you a new heart, but what he does is it changes your orientation. See, if you don't have a right orientation towards God, you're going to have a, a skewed perspective on what's good for people. Your, your perspective won't be right. You won't call people out on sin. Because what does sin do? It always destroys but if you don't have a right perspective on God and believe His Word, you won't know how to help people. Because sometimes the best thing you can do is something that's going to make them mad at you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs. Your real friends will say something that hurts. But if you don't have a right relationship with God, you will not know how to ultimately help people in the, the way they need it most. Can you do kind things as a non-Christian? Of course. It's part of the image of God in us to do good things. That is, that's, that's there. But does it really help in the end? No. What are, what are all our righteous acts called in Isaiah? He calls them filthy rags. I won't go into the gross imagery he's actually using there in Isaiah. You guys, our best deeds are never righteous and good on their own. We need to have a right relationship with God so that we can really love others. Don't, we can't forget that part. And by the way, this love for God is not a mechanical belief in the right things. 
you have to have right content. You do. If you don't believe Jesus is God, that he came as a man sent by God to die for sins, if you don't believe he actually died on a cross to pay for your sins, if you don't believe that he rose from the dead after being buried for three days, if you don't believe that, you're not going to heaven. There's certain content you have to believe, okay? But everything I've just said, the demons believe it. James says that. The demons believe this, but they shudder. They're not saved. Just knowing it does not mean anything. What kind of knowing or believing are we talking about? It's a trusting in, in faith, that all that God said and do is actually true. And as a result of it, you'll follow Him. What does follow mean in Scripture? What is the picture? I couldn't hear you. I'm sorry. Obey. Obey. We'll get to that. But you guys understand, a real faith in Jesus Christ, in God, will result in a following after. Okay? You don't... You don't earn your salvation by following Him. You do not earn it. You can't, you and I cannot earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to buy it or deserve it. Nothing. Right? But God in His grace, what does grace mean? It's a gift, a free gift that you don't deserve or earn, that I don't deserve or earn. It's a free gift of God because He's gracious and He's merciful. What's mercy? Withholding what we do deserve. He holds back. When He gives us salvation, he, des- he decides to give us His mercy, eternal mercy. Isn't that cool? So there's all these things are incorporated in believing rightly. Okay? You don't have to become a full-on theologian, but here's the deal. You don't deserve salvation. You can't earn salvation. Neither does Chris Brunzeel. God in His great love sent His Son in while we were yet sinners, yet enemies, God sent His Son to die for us. So there is content we have to believe, but then there's got to be a commitment, and that is the obeying part. It's a life of walking, okay? It's a present tense kind of thing where you're walking after. Are you going to fall down and make mistakes? I did this week. Did any of you sin this week? Everyone raise your hand. Every single person here did. You're a sinner, saved by grace. That's why I say we look around here. I'm not looking at perfect people. God sees you as perfect. Why? He sees Jesus. If you're a Christian and you are in Christ, He sees Jesus and He sees you as perfected and holy and righteous. Now, does He know about our imperfections? Well, of course. That's what the process of changing and growing called sanctification is all about. But don't don't miss this, you guys. What love for God is, is really a love for God. We sang this of, behold your God, seated on the throne, exalted high and lifted up. Loving God is, you're you're loving Him for who He is, just beholding Him. Now, we we don't have Isaiah, you know, we don't have the same experience where Isaiah got taken to heaven to see Jesus high and lifted up on the throne, filling the temple with His glory, Isaiah 6. We don't have that same experience, but we have it in His Word where we can behold our God. That's why I know I'm like a a dripping faucet, but that's why I keep saying, read your Bible. You want to love God more? You've got to read your Bible. Will you understand everything in it? 
No, I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm still learning. I will keep on learning. But it's pretty clear. There's a lot of stuff that's very clear, isn't it? But that's why we're going again through the gospel so slowly because we are beholding our king. How Jesus lived on earth is how God is. He told Philip, hey, when you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Because Philip says, well, show us the Father. He goes, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What an audacious claim. So that's why you've got to be in the Word. Behold Jesus. Get to know Him. Love Him. Praise Him. Praising is so good and important because it changes our view. When I'm only thinking about me, I'm me-focused. When I start praising God and we sing, that's why songs are so helpful. It grabs our affections and helps us to think on God and to think towards God. Any of you experience that? I love our worship times. I mean, I'm obviously in the back. I'm trying to say hi to people. You know, I guys hug you and stuff. I love it when everyone's here and I just get to sing. Oh, my goodness. My heart fills up. Then I get excited to come. You guys, I, I get nervous coming up here. I always do. But singing, I get excited. Oh, I get to open the Word now. Let's get into it. Let's continue the worship. Because I want us all to love God better. We love Him through His Word. Where am I? Oh my goodness, I'm totally off my notes. You got the point. Let's see what He, he does next, right? He started with a God-word relation first, but then He said, and the second is like it. But notice this, was Jesus asked for the second great commandment? What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all, and that way, each one of those things with all your heart, soul, mind, that means with all that you are. You can't just love them with your mind. I read my Bible today, I'm good. You also have to love with your strength, what you do during the day. With your heart, your, your, your emotions, your affections. You, we've got to be totally pursuing a greater love for God. But then he says, and the second is like it. He is making such a key point here. Such a key point that becomes a major test for us to use to check our salvation. Follow me with this, okay? So he's going manward now. He's, he's gone from here to here, okay? He's tying the two together. And he's quoting Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, he's showing his mastery over the word, over Torah. Again, there's a, there's a, a story that talks about, um, you know, uh, these different, there's two big schools of rabbis, Shammai and Hillel were the two main teachers of two schools of thought. All right, so there's all these stories about these guys, but there's one good one. Uh, a pagan came before Shammai, this one rabbi, and said to him, make me a proselyte, a follower, but on condition that you teach me the entire, entire Torah while I, am, while I am standing on one foot. Shammai drove him off with a, with a rod that he had in his hand. But then when he came before Hillel, the other school, okay, the latter told him, here's, here's his answer. Guy says, teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing. Show me the heart of it. Here's what he said. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. So what did Jesus just say? Basically the same thing, but in the positive sense. Do unto others as you would have them. Love your neighbors as yourself. Real love, here's the point. Real love for God will and must 
show and love for others. Oh, well, I love God, but I don't have to like them or I don't have to love them. You guys, that doesn't fly with Jesus. Real love for God will, must, I'm going to use must because he says that all the law and the commandments hang on these two. He has tied them together. Now, I'm not saying you can, you don't, you don't, if you have to struggle with somebody, okay, well, that's normal. (laughs) But can you let it stay there? You cannot. If you read the uh, epistle of 1 John, it's towards the end of your Bible. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he was the, probably the youngest of the disciples. He also wrote the book of Revelation. Well, he also wrote three little letters towards the end of his life called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John, he makes a huge point in his epistle, 1st John, that you have to love your brother because it reveals truly your love for God. And if you hate your brother, it really reveals you don't love God because God is love. Now, when I say God is love, that's a phrase taken in our society and has totally skewed it. Biblical love is vastly different than what the world calls love. It's vastly different in all the right and better and best ways. Okay, please hear that. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Whoa. And by the way, Jesus made the same point in the Sermon on the Mount. If you hate your brother, you're basically a murderer. John is just saying the same thing, but he takes one step further, and there's no eternal life. Oh, wow. That's why when I say we do communion, if you have an issue with somebody in this body, you're bearing a grudge, you're angry at them, and it's sticking around, you've got to deal with it. You have to. I have to. I'm saying, let, if you're going to do communion, we're doing communion next week. If you have not dealt with an issue you have with a brother or sister in here, don't take communion. Try to pull them aside or talk to them afterwards. You know, not taking communion won't kill you, but taking communion with unrepentant, ongoing sin that you're not struggling against, especially in, in reconciling with somebody, that's, you're on dangerous ground. This is pretty hard, huh? I'm totally taking a stop here because yes, so much of the commands in the New Testament are about how to live with others. The, all the, so many of the commands have to do with how we relate to one another. And this you shall know that these are my disciples by how they love one another. See, our interaction with each other is evangelistic. I know from first hand from people who are not Christians who've said that they were here because they saw love like they've never seen anywhere else. Not because you guys were so special, this specific church, but I'm telling you, our love that comes from Christ where we show it to each other in real and practical ways over time, over the ups and downs, you know, we get mad at each other, but we reconcile, we work things out. Well, over the years, what a mature love and what a huge witness. I mean, look at our culture. Oh, my goodness. I have not seen so much anger in my lifetime. You cannot have normal dialogue where you disagree with each other. Name calling and just, it's brutal right now. 
So I stop watching TV. I just get too, just too worked up. Yeah, I play solitaire now. <laughs> My iPad. <laughs> Lord help me. <laughs> but let's not miss this point that real love for each other, again, it's not mere words either, is it? Is it? Oh, I love you. And you walk away and they're hurting. Is that love? Oh, you have a need. Oh, okay, well, I'll be praying for you and you walk away. We've got, we've got huge need in this area now, don't we? I mean, we, we have the regular needs all the time, but boy, I mean, I was just walking grocery store by my house and a guy came up and he doesn't live here. I was like, oh, what are you doing here? Well, my house just burned down in Ventura. <laughs> I'm staying with friends up here. I mean, there are hundreds of people have lost their homes. We're not organizing anything big here. We don't really have a place to dump off, but I will keep letting you guys know about when I'm going down there to drop, we're going to be just bringing water. There's going to be needs over the next weeks and months because it takes time to rebuild homes, you know, and uh, so as I find out stuff, I'll let you know, but real love has to show in practical ways, okay? But I tell you what the hardest love to show is? See, it's easy to buy a bunch of water and take it down and say, hey, love you in the name of Jesus Christ, which is a good thing. But the hardest love are with the people who are closest to you. Day after day after day. Because after a while, our, our eccentricities, and we all have them. I, mine are really out there because I'm so blah out loud. But you know what? You all do. And here's the let me tell you, you're all weird. <laughs> Actually, it's, I'm the weird one. But here's the deal. Over time, we'll start bugging each other because that's natural. But God calls us to a supernatural kind of love, right? And that's where real love kicks in, real biblical love, where God gives you a love, and you have to respond to it, and you have to help each other because it's inconvenient, it's messy. But here's the deal. You've got to apply what I'm calling self-evaluation, the love test. How are you doing? Jesus, look what he says here. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Wow. So if I have real love for God, it will show this way. But if I don't have anything this way, what does it say about my love for God? I don't have real love for God because God is love. So I've got to apply. I'm... I'm passing over so many of my notes. <laughs> you know, I do want to show you a slide here. Oh, man, I'm not even up. Go to the one where there's a picture of the, the trees, because this is a biblical image. This will help you evaluate yourself. Okay, so don't look at this side yet. If you're not a Christian, your heart is centered on, on me, taking care of me. But from a heart that has its roots like this, no God, it's going to produce bad fruit. But because of Jesus, we can have a new heart and we have a new driving desire. It's I must, I want to, I long to honor God. And if that's the case, your roots will be in your heart, right? This is the center of who you are. The fruit in your life, you'll have different kind of fruit. So this is just a picture. Look at your life like you're a tree. What is the fruit in your life? especially in how you relate to others. Do you show real love? Think it through. Now, so first of all, there needs to be what I've been calling proof. Is there proof 
Is there real evidence? If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit who dwells, He takes up residence in you. He is God, and God can't be kept down. So if you really have the Holy Spirit, you will show the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Recognize that from Galatians 5. Okay? That's, is there proof? Okay? And now, again, let me, let me say this real clearly. I also want to talk about process because you're saying, well, I've, how much fruit are you looking for? Well, if you've been a Christian a long time, you should be seeing more fruit than, uh, than newer Christians. All right? And, but, there, but the Christian life is a process. All right? So we're not talking about perfection here. Please hear that, okay? But do you see change in you over time? Are you different than you used to be? Are you a better more godly, when I say better, I mean God, more godly, more like Jesus, because that's what God said He's changing us towards. That's His goal, to be more like Jesus, Romans 8, 28 and 29. You guys get that? Is there proof, but also in the, in the context, that is, do you see a process of change happening? Okay? I, I really want to challenge you with that, because that's so critical. Going to church doesn't make you good with God. Being here, this is just geography. If your heart isn't right, it doesn't matter where you're at. But if you love God, there will be change. And is going to church important? Well, of course, we're commanded to. It's just one of the things that helps us grow and change. Get in the Word, but start loving others. Look at how can I be a better lover of others in practical, right ways? Boy, I've jumped over so many notes. That's okay. Let's look at what Jesus does here. And then you have to jump to Mark chapter 12 to see Jesus' victory because there's some, in in Matthew, it doesn't tell us the rest of the story with this lawyer. And I like what happens here. So we're going to look at Mark 12 in the next couple minutes. It's really quick. So Mark 12, verse 32 to 34. I think I have it on the next slide. No, keep going. Keep going. There you go. So I have it up here and I'll just read it with you. And the scribe said to him, the lawyer, you are right, teacher. Whoa, 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 whoa. You are right, teacher. That's why I was saying the tide has changed, hasn't it? Because remember, this was a bad guy coming to test. That word test is the same word used of, of Jesus being tested by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 3. So he came with evil intent, but something happened here the power of the word. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That phrase, burnt sacrifice or burnt offerings and sacrifices, says that clues us in the lawyer, the Pharisee, the self-righteous guys, this guy has recognized the heart of the law and that Jesus was right. God doesn't want our rituals if there's not a relationship. God doesn't want our duties if we don't delight in Him. The self-righteous Pharisee with a legalistic, ritualistic focus, traditions of the Father's centered religion, is now moving to the heart. He's having an inner man response towards God and others. He's getting it. The eyes are opening up. 
And when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He hadn't converted yet, but we see Jesus encouraging him. Jesus saw his insight and understanding. He saw the change. So Jesus, before he launches into his attack, because he's going to attack next. Next week we're going to see it. He goes on the attack. See, he's been answering their attacks. Now he goes on the attack next week. But before he does this, he takes time to encourage this man to pursue where his heart was leading him. Physically, the scribe was standing next to the Messiah. This Messiah called himself the door to the sheep, for the sheep. He he does that in John chapter 10. But here's the deal. All the other Pharisees were standing next to Jesus too. But this man, his heart was leading him to take a spiritual step. This scribe was walking towards the right door in his response to Jesus. And Jesus encouraged him to keep moving in the right direction. And that's towards himself. The issue was, what do you think about the Son of Man? Who do people say I am? Disciples. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, you're right. This Pharisee was headed in that direction. The opponent's defeat, we see it, in, again, we're still in Mark. It says, and after that, no one dared him ask him any more questions. They were done. He had shown absolute mastery. See the, they saw the expert's change of heart. They've seen their three defeats publicly. Nothing left to say. Silence. But this isn't the end of the confrontation. We'll see next week where Jesus takes us. But here's the deal. Here's some of the so what's. One, apply that love test to you. Do you love God? Do you love Him? Again, I left out so much because there's so much in this. But do you behold God seated on the throne? Do you take time to stop, drop, and listen? (laughs) Get into God's Word and then start imagining what's being talked about. That's why you don't... I'd say, hey, you need to read broadly in Scripture, but sometimes you need to camp out. Go to Isaiah 6. Go through that word by word and just try to picture... Because we're supposed to picture what's going on. We're supposed, that's why I take time to describe the Temple Mount and all this, tum, this crazy stuff happening on top of the Temple and all the crowds around. Because we're supposed to picture what's happening and take ourselves there so that we can behold our King. But I also want us to see the, see the strength of our Savior and Lord. Don't miss this. He was taking on the heavyweights and He was taking names. He was taking on the most powerful men in that land, almost politically, but definitely with the religious elite. And in the eyes of the people, their their jaws are hitting the ground. Wow. He silenced, can you imagine silencing a pastor? (laughs) The one with the ones who talk all the time. He silenced the religious elite, the teachers. And again, consider your relation to the great commandment, your love for God and love for others. May we have a growing love for God and an evident love for others, that which imitates our Lord's own example and one that proves practical to the end that we would prove to be His disciples and thereby rejoice that God is indwelling and working in us because if we see proof, it should cause rejoicing. When I see what God has done in me, it it makes my heart go, yes! Man, I do all these stupid things, but I know He's working in me, yes! 
yes. Talked about it last week. I can have hope at a funeral. Because I know that he has, he has saved me, he's changing me, and I get to be his follower. And here's the deal. I pray that our, our lives, our, how we live our lives, it would be evangelistic to a watching world, a needy world desperately looking for something real, something lasting. They, want, they don't want any more fakes. Don't be fake. Be you, but be a you that's pursuing God. Right? You with me in this? Let's change and grow, okay, for the glory of God. And, and by the way, is it good to follow God? Or is he just like squishing the life out of us? Right? No, following God is always the best. Always. Might get mocked, might get made fun of, but it's worth it. God is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are great. Thank you for your word. God, we uh, just pray that you would change us and grow us for your glory and our good, God. Glorify yourself in the life of this church. Jesus' name, amen.